When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. And she named him Asher. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went forth and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your, some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband that now you would take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me tonight, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. After she bore a daughter and named, afterwards she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we uh, dig in. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these folks and a chance to get together to, um, to worship, um, to sing, to pray, to read your word, um, to study it, um, to be in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, God, we uh, thank you for this opportunity and ask that you would use it um, to make us into the people that you've called us to be. God, that you would use these things, um, these elements of worship, and that you would mold us into uh, the image of Jesus Christ, that our lives and our characters, our thoughts, our desires, every ounce of our being would be conformed to Jesus, that it would be pressed in like a mold into the shape of Jesus, and that when someone were to look at us, um, they would see the life of Christ um, and, and not see um, the junk that is uh, in ourselves as as, as as men. Um, God, to do that, we need your Holy Spirit to work. We need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and to work in us while we are here to shine light on this passage, um, a, a story from thousands of years ago that in many ways seems obscure to us, and yet at the same time it has something to teach us um, and show us about who you are and who we are and who you've called us to be. So help us to do that in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if, if, I don't know what you think, but reading that story, you're probably like, what are we, what is this story? Like, what are we, um, this is a bizarre place to, to camp for, uh, for the day. Um, but it is this continuing, um, uh, uh, story in which we are, I was about to say, where are my sermon notes? Man, that was that was a little bit terrifying there for a second. I was like, I'm going to have to do this whole thing <laughs> memory. Um, uh, anyway, sorry. Um, 
you're probably like, man, what are, how, where are we going to go with this story? Here's an interesting thing. I've got a couple of resources that I use while I'm preaching through this, this Jacob narrative, right? One of them is called Preaching Christ in the Old Testament. And it talks about, you know, different, um, it's a commentary that is thinking through the lens of seeing Christ in these different texts. And here's what's interesting. When it gets to this passage, it skips it. <laughs> Right. It just goes, "Eh, there's nothing there. Move on to the next story or whatever. And it stops, which is sort of crazy. But 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 it shows you something about this passage that this passage seems obscure to us. Right. Like it seems like a completely different world with people doing weird things that we don't do anymore. And it's just kind of out there or whatever. But it's but it's not completely. There's something I think that's tied to it. And it is connected to this idea that we've been talking about, about wrestling with God, about how our lives, Jacob's life. The life of Israel and our lives are characterized by different ways that we wrestle against who we are and wrestle with God through those things. It's interesting because um, Leah actually makes a direct reference um, to that idea there in that passage. There's a place where she talks about, um, where is it, in verse... um, In verse 8, she says, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. Okay, That word mighty wrestlings, it's actually translated, if you look at the the Hebrew of it, it's actually like God wrestlings. And so she's kind of saying, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister. It's almost like she, she recognizes that the things that are going on in her life are also things that are not just earthly, right? They're not just things that are being dealt with on, on an earth plane. This stuff is going on in these things that is that is spiritual, right? That there's another level to these things. And that's exactly what we've been talking about the whole time, is that these struggles that we go through, these wrestlings, are multifaceted, right? That we, we experience them at different levels. We've already talked about the idea of wrestling against God in that um, God subverts our expectations, right? He does things and we think, that's not the way things should go. And yet God says, I'm sovereign and I'm going to do things the way I uh, want them to, to be done. And so we struggle. We wrestle against God and his sovereignty sometimes. Tanner talked about how we struggle. um, We face these different forces, right? There are these different influences from different places, and we struggle against them, um, uh, feeling like somehow there are other of these forces that can take away our place with God or whatever, right? Um, And and can interfere with that. Um, And we wrestle with those things. We wrestle with trying to do life, right? When all these difficult things are happening around us. Um, we talked about the idea of the, the, how we, we wrestle with God when we think um, that we can get what we deserve through sinful means. And we talked about that with the story of Jacob. We talked about rest, the wrestling that comes when we have made mistakes and feel like in those mistakes we have walked away from God and there's no way back. And yet, even in the midst of that, to wrestle in that situation for God to bring us back into his people. And then last week, we struggle to recognize that God is our sufficiency, right? God is all we need. All we need, all the things that we think we want and think we need to be happy and satisfied in life, they're illusions, that God is what we need, okay? And we've talked about all those themes. Well, this week, we're zooming in on something a little more, um, maybe at present for some of us. Um, This week, we're talking about the struggle that probably hits close to home for a lot of us, and that is... The struggle to transcend the family that we came from. And the struggle to transcend the, the, the sins and the patterns and the mess-ups that 
are almost generational when we look at our families, right? Things that happen to us, ways that we were raised, different things that seem to pull us back down to earth and away from God, right? Because we, I think that's what this story is about. It is this, it is this crazy kind of ugly story of a, a family that is a mess, um, in, in Jacob's life. And so that's what we're going to look at. Family is, is the source of some of our greatest joys, right? In life. And it is also the source of some of our most crushing disappointments and failures. Um, it has that kind of power, family does, because it is such a critical institution, right? Um, God ordained the family before he had ordained the church, before he ordained the state, before he created the community or society or anything, right? There was family. Basically, if you think about it in, in, in the Adam and Eve Genesis story, God starts out with one man and a, a personal relationship with God. And then that next relationship is he creates a wife, and now you have a marriage, right? And then what's the next thing? Those two married people have children, and now you have this family, right? And so you think, man, this family entity is so central and critical. It's been there since the very beginning. And it's, and it's part, it's a huge part of the way that God forms and shapes us. And that's part of the scary thing of it is we begin to realize how powerful the formative nature of family is in our lives. Um, family is a spiritual battlefield. Okay. Spiritual warfare takes place in our families. It is too pivotal a place in our lives for the enemy not to attack that. Okay. Not to try to mess that up. And so not only is it so is central. Not only is it so pivotal. In fact, I, you know, uh, I'm David and, and Madison are about to uh, start doing premarital counseling. Many of you who have who I've performed your wedding, you did premarital counseling with me. We always go through a section where we talk about family of origin in that. Why? Because we recognize that when two people from different families come together, there is going to be clashes. Okay? Because your family of origin was so forming of who you are that there's no way that when the two of you end up starting your own family, there's not going to be some sort of friction there. Okay? And so we talk about the fact that your family taught you how to be in ways that you don't even perceive a lot of times. Your family oftentimes taught you what is good or important or repulsive. Your family taught you how to communicate, how to express love, how to fight, how to celebrate, how to grieve, how to worship. Your family taught you what is acceptable. It taught you what is optional. It taught you what is preferable. It taught you how to work. It taught you how to play. It taught you how to rest. And you probably, you never thought about your family teaching you those things, and yet it did. Because you learned how to do that stuff through your family. Sometimes that was a good thing, and sometimes, as we look back, it's a difficult and hard thing. Sometimes we don't even notice it until we get married or something, right? And all of a sudden you go... Well, everybody knows this is the way you do things. And then your spouse goes, uh, that is not the way you do things, right? And it's your first big fight. Um, I, I'll bet you if, if married people in here started talking about, man, we had this fight one time because I said, well, this is how mama did it. And then she said, well, that's not how I'm going to do it. We would have, probably have a lot of stories in here, okay? That's a picture of those, those, two, those families coming into conflict with each other. Um, We struggle with family, but the overarching picture that we're going to see here is God says there's something bigger than family that is here. 
There's something more important than family that is here. And even in the midst of the difficulties and the joys of family, um, God is going to step in and God is going to be good and gracious and merciful um, and work even in the tension of our families. And so let's take a few minutes and look at this story. Um, that again displays a family that is complicated um, and has a lot of junk going on and and some craziness okay and we're going to look at that through kind of saying three ways in which our families um, tend to be points of of wrestling with God right struggling with God and see the first one is this we struggle against what I'm going to call family sins Okay, we struggle with God against family sins. So here's something that is statistically and anecdotally obvious to a lot of people. Um, We frequently follow the sins of our families. All right. If our our family has certain patterns of sins and we oftentimes notice that the children of those families participate in the same kind of sins, and their children participate in the same kind of sins, right? Um, We see this in all kinds of different behaviors, and I'm just talking about, I know this is, we're going to get nervous here, right? Because people are going to start going, wait a minute, where are you going with this? Like, I'm I'm uncomfortable here. Like, I don't know what you're going to talk about. Um, Don't do that. Just just listen and and go, yeah, you're right. We see these things happen, right? Um, for example, statistically speaking, as numbers, we see people who have been from abused situations are more likely to abuse. People from addiction situations are more likely to be addicted. People from divorce situations are more likely to divorce. That's just numbers, right? I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm not giving you reasons. I'm not saying causes. I'm just saying we see that statistically. It exists. Um, it's hard to figure out exactly why that is. There's all kinds of factors, and sociologists have been about it. I'm sure there are spiritual things. I'm sure there are emotional factors. It's all tied up together. But it does speak to the power of the family, right? That we tend to do, to make the same mistakes that our fathers and mothers made, and our grandfathers and grandmothers made, and our generations back. It seems like oftentimes we get caught in this gravity of our families, okay? You see that in this story. If you notice something, a bunch of the goofiness that's going on in, in Jacob's family has been goofiness that has already happened in the lives of Isaac and Rebecca and the lives of, uh, of Abraham and Sarah, okay? It's the same goofiness repeating itself, even though it was a disaster in previous things. And so we notice a few things. Number one, we notice this practice, this, this negative, sinful practice of taking another wife to deal with infertility, Okay, we've seen that several times now. Um, Abraham and Sarah had that problem, right? And they decided to fix that problem by bringing her servant, Hagar, into the mix. And so Abe was basically like, I got one wife, one concubine, two kids, and this thing's a train wreck, right? It was this ugly mess, and in all honesty, it's still an ugly mess today. We are still, in terms of the Middle East, living out the repercussions of of Isaac and Ishmael uh, in, in our current situation. 3,500 years later, right? Um, But that's not enough for Jacob. Jacob's basically like, hey, hold my beer and watch this, okay? And he says, two wives, two concubines, 12 kids, plus some, right? And guess what? It's that much more of a train wreck, right? It is that much more of a problem uh, in their lives. Um, He must have seen it. They must have heard about it in the lives of of Abraham and Sarah and the problems that it caused. And yet they still continue to say, 
well, this is a legitimate solution to these problems. These are what we're going to do. Um, as an aside, and I've mentioned this a couple times as we've gone through it, because polygamy is so often seen in the Old Testament, but here's just a little freebie for you. Polygamy, the having of multiple spouses, particularly one husband and multiple wives, doesn't work. Okay? It doesn't. All right? We have a culture that currently is saying any two individuals can get married and have a relationship with each other and be married. It is only a matter of time before that logic says, if any two individuals can, why can't any three? Why can't any 12? Why can't any number of people get together and join into a marital relationship like this? And oftentimes when you hear people make those discussions, and they are going on in our country, um, they will say things like, we know the Bible shows us all these pictures of people who um, were polygamous, and and the Bible doesn't specifically say anything um, against it in some ways, right? It never just like says, Hey, don't do that. That's this thing that is that is wrong and sinful. Except the reality is is that it does all over the place. Whenever there's a polygamous relationship in the in the Old Testament, it's a train wreck. It's always a train wreck. Okay, Sarah uh, and Abraham, Jacob and his wives, Solomon and his wives, David and his wives. Like all of it is a mess. And so that is a picture of the fact that God says, "I didn't design it this way." Right? It was intended to be one man and one woman for life. Um, until death do you part. And we have created all these ways to get around that. That's a problem, okay? And so that's a freebie. That's not even the place. I'm just pointing to the fact that they're repeating the same sins that their fathers did, okay? Another sin that you notice is they continue to try to take matters into their own hands when God doesn't do what they want to do, right? So again, along that idea, Jacob in verse 2 says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel because he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb, right? Jacob recognizes that the reason why Rachel is not getting pregnant is because God is not allowing her to get pregnant. And yet notice what you don't see. You don't see them go to the Lord in prayer. You don't see them seek out God's favor and blessing in their marriage, like maybe the way that you would see in the story about Hannah later on in the, in, in the Old Testament. Hannah was barren. She prayed to God. She gave a double portion offering to God. She went to the temple and wept before God because of her barrenness. She was seeking a God answer to her problem. That's not what you see in, with Jacob, right? That's not what you saw with Abraham and Sarah. They had problems, and they said, maybe we should just try to figure this out on our own. And we'll do things that maybe even are sinful to achieve these ends, right? That's another family sin that you see passed down in, these, in this, this family. Um, a third one and final one that we're going to talk about is favoritism. We've already talked about it before, but we see these seeds of favoritism planted. Jacob has a favorite wife. And But then that favoritism plays not just among his wives, but then it begins to play into his children. And if you've read the Old Testament, if you read Genesis, you know that when these kids get to be a little bit older, who the favorite son is has some pretty lasting implications for this family in terms of lies and deception and an attempted murder, essentially, and all these different things, right? And that favoritism is a dysfunction that we've already seen in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah, and now we see again in the life of Jacob. Um, sins follow us. 
And it's, and it's, and it's not fun and it's not fair. Um, and yet we see it all the time. It's almost like our families have a, a gravity to them, right? That is pulling us back in. And even when we know that we shouldn't do certain things that our family has done, we tend to find ourselves acting in very similar ways. We find it hard to escape. Notice, I'm not saying escape is impossible. In fact, I'm saying escape is definitely possible. That's the whole point of the gospel, right? But I'm saying there is this obvious thing, this force that is pulling us, this gravity. Okay, and so we see that pattern in there, you know. How many times, you know, I'm never going to make the same mistakes my mom made. I'm never going to do the same things that I saw as negative in my, in my dad. But then at the same time, what do we do? We end up doing those things, right? I'm never going to be grudgy like, you know, uh, my mom was. Well, and then you end up being grudgy. I'm never going to be mad like my dad was. And then you're going to be mad. I'm never going to be, you know, whatever, whatever the issue is for you, right? And we find ourselves actually living those things out. So the first thing we see is that pattern, right? But then there's something else we see is we notice this about wrestling with God in our families. For some reason, the hardest place to live out your faith is in your family. And it seems like it should be the easiest place to live out your faith. And yet, oftentimes it isn't. So look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, Leah, remember, not the favored wife Rachel, but the, 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 the cast-aside wife Leah. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so she called his name Asher. Okay, if you were here last week... Um, you know the story that we just finished. We get to Leah is the cast-aside wife. Um, she tries to win her husband's affections by having children because that was the trump card she had over Rachel, the beloved wife, right? Rachel couldn't have kids, but Leah could. And even though her husband didn't love her, she could have these kids and produce um, a family for him. And yet, child after child, she hoped that those children would make her husband love her, and they didn't. And that's what she comes to. And we, and we saw that beautiful passage at the end where she, she has a first son and she says, now my husband will love me. And she has a second son and she's like, now my husband will be attached to me. And she says a third son, now my husband will you know, be committed to me or whatever. And then she has the fourth son and she says, you know what, now I will praise the Lord. Right? And we talked about how I think what's going on there is she recognizes something. She recognizes this is never going to work. My husband's never going to love me, and I can do whatever it takes, and it's never going to work. But you know what? He's not going to make me happy, ultimately. Marriage is good and right and all these things, but ultimately, I've got to find my sufficiency in Jesus, in God, right? She doesn't know Jesus' name yet, but I've got to find my sufficiency in God. And so she says, in the end, I'm not going to bear any more children because now I'm going to worship the Lord, right? I'm going to praise the Lord for the situation that I find myself, right? And so you go, man, she's come to this great realization and she's come into the faith or whatever. And then what happens nine verses later? Nine verses later, when Rachel goes, well, I'm going to get this, this thing evened out. I'm going to give Jacob my servant so that she can have, that she can have kids through her. Then what does Leah do? She's like, uh-uh. 
I got a servant too. <laughs> and so she, so she gives her servant to Jacob so that Jacob can have children with her. And you want to go, don't do it, Leah, right? You don't need this. You've already realized that God is, is all that you need and that you can rest in Him and find your sufficiency in Him. And yet, she doesn't. Right? And, and on one side, we, it, that should make us go, man, isn't that like life? That we can sit, we can read the scriptures and we can sit in a, in a worship service and, and the, the light bulb can go off and it can and be real and we can understand it. And then yet we go, man, it's, everything's going to be different from now on because this thing has happened. And then we get back into our real life, especially into our family life. And it is so hard to hold on to that truth. And that gravity starts pulling again. And then as soon as something clicks, we go... Man, I'm going to act just like I did before. This is about a competition, and I'm going to win this thing, and he's going to be my husband, and I'm going to, you know, and, and it all seems like it's gone, okay? I don't think that delegitimizes what she experienced. I think she actually understood something and came to an understanding there. But what it does show us is that, man, gravity's hard. It's hard to push against that gravity, especially the gravity that is our families. All right, especially those patterns that we continue to see. The Christian life is a fight like that, right? It is a difficult, it is a struggle to fight for the faith. And you know, it, it's, I was thinking as I, I went, um, you know, some of you guys have seen me annoyed. And some of you have probably seen me angry a little bit. Some of you have heard me say things that I probably shouldn't have said or, or whatever. But none of you in this room, have seen me at my worst. Okay? But you know who has? Him. My dad. Uh, my kids aren't in the room right now, but they've seen me at my worst. My wife has seen me at my worst because she has been the brunt of it before. Right? And you go, man, why is it so hard to be who I know I am to the people who are most important to me? And the answer is because... It's hard to break free, right? And I'm not just talking about family bonds. I'm talking about sin bonds now and everything. It's hard to be the people that we know we are, especially in the, in the, the, the world of our family. Okay? Um, family tries you, right? It becomes a crucible. Um, spouses try you. Um, children try you. All right? Family is frustrating, and it is humbling. And I would argue that it's actually supposed to be humbling. That's part of the way that God sanctifies us, right? Not everybody ends up getting married. Um, it's not something that God promises to us. But when he does give it to you, you most of us walk into it going, Oh, man, it's going to be so great. I'm falling in love, and I feel so good, and it's whatever. And, and oftentimes it is that. But oftentimes it is not. It is God going... I am going to mold you into the person you're supposed to be, and it is going to be humbling. And I'm going to do that through your wife and through your kids and through your family. Okay? Um, we see that, and we see that in this family. Man, Leah just goes back, and, and it seems like it's hard for her to hold on. Okay? And then there's this one last thing. So um, that, that inherited sins, sort of you could call them, those family sins, hard to live out your faith in the midst of, of your family. And then this, this, not only is family humbling, but family is humiliating. 
Okay, I read that line in Russell Moore's new book. Russell Moore is the, the president of the ERLC. Many of you are familiar with him. He's got a new book out called The Storm-Tossed Family. It's great. Like, I love Russell's uh, writing, right? I love pretty much any book that he writes, I'll read. But this is a really good one. And he has this line in it where he's talking about having a conversation with a friend. And the friend says, you know, I knew having a family would be humbling, but I never knew that it would be humiliating. Okay. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that family is humiliating, right? When we are put in that crucible, the failures that we have in those places are sometimes embarrassing, right? They are humiliating how bad things get, how much we mess up in those situations. And that we look at our lives and we go, man, I'm just not, like, I'm not even just an idiot. I'm a fool, right? I'm not even just bad at this. Like, I'm not even sure why I'm here. I'm so, I've messed this thing up so bad in, in, in a certain circumstance or whatever. I think you see the ugliness, the humiliating side of what family can turn into in this passage. And I'll show you what I mean. Verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, when Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field, he brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And, but she said to him, is it a small matter that you've already taken my husband away? Would you take my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him. And said, you must come in to me tonight, for I have hired you with your, with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And so she called his name Issachar. And then it happens again. She conceives again and has a, another child whom she names Zebulun. Um, and then later on she has a daughter, Dinah. Okay? Now, so mandrakes. Mandrakes are this root, right? And they, they call them mandrakes because they look like a man. Like they kind of look like a body, like a, like a doll or whatever. Um, and for pretty much all cultures, all of human history, um, they have recognized that they have certain drug-like properties. They're kind of a, a low hallucinogen. Um, they, most cultures have considered them to be some sort of aphrodisiac or, or fertility kind of thing. And that's probably what's going on in this passage. Reuben finds these things out in a field or something, and Rachel wants them. Why? Because Rachel can't have kids. And, and she is, again, a picture of her not seeking after God, but seeking to these um, uh, supernatural uh, witchcraft kind of solutions things, right? She's like, oh, there's this, there's this thing that people say makes you have kids, and so I'm going to try that, that solution to it or whatever, instead of going to God. So she, she goes and says, can I have some of your mandrakes? And obviously, Leah is like, I'm not giving you anything, right? We are not friends. We are, we are enemies in this situation, and I'm not giving you anything um, that I don't have to. We think the case is, is that in polygamous cultures, oftentimes there is a head wife, and Rachel is definitely that head wife. And in some cultures, the head wife essentially gets to say who sleeps with the husband that night. Okay? That's just the way it often works in polygamous cultures. We think that may be what's going on here. And so that literally, Rachel has the authority to say who gets to sleep with Jacob on any given night. And so Rachel says, cool, if you'll give me some of your mandrakes, then you can sleep with um, Jacob this evening. And so that's what happens. 
um, it's handed over, and and uh, Leah and and Jacob um, sleep together, and she conceives another child, even though it, she had up to that point not been having any kids. So, some people look at this passage and they go, you know what's going on here? It's actually a good thing. Rachel has finally realized that she doesn't have sole rights over Jacob, right? Leah is his legitimate wife also. She has rights to him in terms of, of, of intimacy and all these things like that. And so Rachel's not going to try to hold that for herself anymore. She's going to allow Leah into that. That is very, very friendly of what's going on here because I don't think it's happening at all. What happens is this place gets really ugly really quick. Um, what is actually happening here is Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, has become a prostitute in his own home. That's what's happened, okay? That his sexual favors are being sold for vegetables, okay? Um, that's the picture that we have here. Um, Jacob is literally a stud, okay? Not like stud, like, hey, lady stud, right? Not that kind of stud. Like, literally like animal husbandly, husbandry stud. He is breeding stock now in his home. There are four women who are trying to compete to have children, and his basic uh, function is there to just do that. Um, he has, as the promised seed, the patriarch of Israel, he's basically breeding stock now. Um, that's messed up. All right? Um, I have to believe that Jacob at some point looked up and said, how did I get here? Right? Like, this is not who I thought I was going to be. And I just feel ugly and dirty about this whole situation that has presented itself. Again, the patriarch of God's people, the man through whom the nation of Israel would be named, the bearer of the seed of promise in the Messiah, and what? A vegetable prostitute. Okay? That's basically where we're at. Okay? Why? Because family can get ugly. All of a sudden, like you can look up and you can go, how did we get here? Think about the way ugly divorces happen, right? You go through a divorce and all of a sudden two people who at one time in their lives were in love and had a family together now hate each other and are willing to destroy each other's lives at whatever cost. And you have to say, man, so what happened? Like, how did we get here? How did it get so ugly so quickly? And so, again, you see that guy from, from Russell Moore's book. I always knew family would be humiliating. I mean, humbling. But I never knew that it could be humiliating. It's sad and scary how quickly things can get out of control in our lives. I'm never going to make the same mistakes my parents made. Right? I'm never going to do the things that my grandparents did. I'm never going to be like my sibling who has done all these things or whatever. And then what happens? You look up and you're like, I am those things. I have done those things. Life's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. We get to the end of the story, I think, and all we can say is, man, what a mess. This, this family is a mess. And, there's just a, and it's only going to get worse as we get into the Joseph narrative, too. It is a great challenge to live out our Christian lives within our families. But that doesn't mean that it's a black hole, right? There's a gravity to it, but it's not inescapable. Um, we can find healing. We can find hope for the things that seem to bind us and hold us back. So we're going, 
we're going to have stuff like that in our, in our lives. Okay, We're going to have stuff that we are humbled by and humiliated by. That's one of the sad things and difficult things about church is there are oftentimes we are scared to say those things to other people. We are scared to say the things that we are humiliated about in our lives and in our faith walks. Right? We don't want to share those things. Why? Because we're humiliated by them. We don't want to share those things. But man... The only way we're ever going to find healing for those things is by being open about them, by being repentant about them, by being proactive in dealing with those issues. And so we see this story of this mess, but then there's something interesting at the very end. And it's subtle, but all of a sudden it is a light, I think, into this whole process. Because you see this ugly mess of these people who are bickering and fighting and using each other against each other. And then what do you see in verse 22? Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. In some ways it's subtle, right? But all of a sudden, in the midst of a group of people who no one deserves any kind of blessing, no one deserves any kind of goodness or any kind of grace, and not because Rachel has done anything. She hasn't finally gotten it or something, and God's like, oh, cool, now that you're a changed person, I'm going to give you what you've always asked for. No, in fact, out of nowhere, having done nothing to deserve it, all of a sudden God extends his mercy to her. He extends his grace to her, and she conceives and has a child. And that child, Joseph, as we know the story progresses, is going to be the savior of Israel, right? Um, He is going to be a prototype, a foreshadowing of of the salvation that is going to come in Jesus Christ, right? Um, And that is the picture that we see in our lives, and the picture that I would argue, the guy who said, man, there's no Jesus in this passage, right? I'm going to just read over this thing, because you can't preach Christ out of this scripture. Yeah, you can. Um, Rachel's conception is is the picture of God's grace and the picture of of who Christ is. Um, We live these goofy, messed up lives full of junk and garbage that is humbling and humiliating. We, We struggle to get away from the gravity of the junk that went on in our lives and our childhoods and all these different things, right? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God shows up and he shows mercy on us. That in the person of Jesus Christ, we are made aware of who Jesus is, that he changes our hearts, and all of a sudden, we're saved. Not because we deserved it, not because we did anything right, but because God is good, gracious, and merciful. That's what happens. Um, That's God's grace. That's God's mercy. That's where we see Christ in this passage, okay? And so, man, I don't know. There's obviously some demonic possession issues going on here, too. Um, uh, but uh, there's, man, somebody's mad. Somebody is upset. Um, but that's, man, that's, that's what we see in this, right? God's grace, even when we don't deserve it and have done nothing for it. That's the picture that we see. And so what I would encourage you is this. Our families, and having said all that, our families are not an excuse for anything, right? Like, we don't get to look at it. There's, there's a thing in our culture right now, too, where we blame everything on our families, right? We're like, oh, well, I'm this way because my parents or my grandparents or, or whatever. That doesn't work, right? Okay? You can't, you can't just keep on. That's what children say. At some point, you become an adult, and you have to go, no, I'm responsible for me, right? Um, and yes, we have to be real and acknowledge those factors that influence this, but at some point, we have to take responsibility for our own lives and say, man, it doesn't matter 
what my family did. It doesn't matter the patterns that I inherited from them. It doesn't matter what they taught me at the end of the day. What, it matter, what matters is who I am in Jesus Christ and have I turned from my sin and trusted in him. And that's what makes all the difference. All right. So let's go to the Lord in prayer um, and just kind of ask God to do those things. Um, ask God to help us to get us free from those things that tend to pull us down. Help us to live authentic lives within our families, um, lives that show our repentance um, and, and also um, our trust that God is the one who saves us. Um, and at the end, um, being willing to be open and honest and repentant when even in our lives we look at it and we go, man, I've messed up so bad, God, and this is so goofy, but I know that your grace is sufficient for these things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you are good. Um, even when we are foolish and sinful and selfish and make a mess of everything around us, you are good. You bless us um, for no reason other than that you are a God who is gracious and merciful and loving to your people. God, thank you that you do not treat us the way our sins deserve. Thank you that you do not um, judge us um, by um, the way that we have lived our lives, but you judge us by the, the death of Jesus Christ, that because of his perfect life and his perfect death, um, we can be made right with you, that we can be in right relationship with you, um, that our sins can be covered, that our righteousness can be um, imputed to us, and that we can be your children. Um, God, thank you for your grace. That's all we can say. Um, help us um, to live lives that are... Um, that are displays of that grace, God. And when we mess up, God, forgive us and continue to show us um, your unrelenting mercy. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing hymn with us.